Immigration is back on and Australia's population is set to grow rapidly over the next few decades. We don't have enough accommodation to house the population as it stands, so how are we going to ramp up the supply of new housing? Which of course is only looking more problematic when you consider that building companies are going to the wall, there's a labour shortage, the cost of materials and capital is rising and housing won't be the only thing that needs to get built. There will be stiff competition for resources. Where will these people work? Where will they shop? Where will they be schooled? Planning for population growth is a mammoth task. For starters, you need reliable forecasts. Governments need to set policy that enables the supply of housing and infrastructure, amongst other things, and in the right locations. And the private sector needs to have the confidence to invest. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. And this week, we've asked a specialist in this area to come and chat with us about what the future might look like, specifically in the apartment space, as we anticipate a 60% increase in our population by 2050. Richard Temlett is the Director in Charter Keck Kramer's Strategic Research Department. That is a mouthful. A former lawyer, Richard specialises in producing forward-looking evidence-based outputs which identify target markets, property market risks, as well as assisting industry players in making development and investment decisions. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. I think this is going to be quite a meaty discussion. Well, thank you very much, Veronica and Chris. Uh, Really great to be on the show. And I agree, I think it is going to be a very meaty discussion. I've got lots of good things to say, and sorry, evidence-based things to say. And I think it's part of a very important discussion that needs to be had. So let's kick it off. Yeah, I don't know where to kick it off as well because Veronica absolutely nailed that intro, right? There's so much going on um, in this space from a demand and supply problem, right? Like what's your sort of current take on, you know, 2023 coming out of COVID, you know, coming out of a building boom, you know, all the challenges of the building um, in the last few years and investor appetite. So what are you seeing, you know, and over the next couple of years in terms of, because you do a lot of advisory to the, the, the development space, right? And what are sort of they thinking and what are you advising and, you know, how's it all going to potentially play out over the next couple of years? Great. Well, look, I'll give you a bit of a background to what we're doing and it'll obviously answer your question. So um, I, the team and I specialize, it's, it's across all asset classes, but man, it's in residential and um, apartments. So it's both built to sell apartments as well as built to rent apartments. Um, across Australia and we have a national proprietary database where we collect collect all the apartment data supplied so we get a pretty good handle on the projects um, that have been historically delivered as, as well as the ones that are you know, planning and are likely to be delivered and it's off the back of that we work with our valuer colleagues um, across across um, Australian cities to understand what's going on from a price and a rental perspective and we have our own in-house um, demographers that do um, population analysis and forecasting and it's off the back of that that we produce the six monthly state of the market apartment market reports. Um, it's, we've now broadened them due to our clients' requests um, across all Australian capital cities. And basically, the clients that we have for are developers, financiers, builders, 
uh, and local, state, and federal governments. And for a while now, we've been writing about the basically the supply shortage, not just in the apartment space, but also in townhouses and houses and across Australia. And this was before COVID. It was just because Australia is a very, very attractive place to live. There's very, very strong levels of net overseas migration, um, some of the strongest in the world, in fact. And um, obviously then COVID has come along and unfortunately COVID has distorted the housing markets. And then I'll go into a couple of details now as to, as to the impacts. But as a result, COVID basically has shut off, shut off the demand for a couple of years with border closures. And more recently, it's played through into construction cost increases and also just very weak sentiment from developers in the developer space in terms of launching their projects. Um, and what that means is that there's going to be a mismatch between the supply of dwellings over the next couple of years and the demand for dwellings. And let's, I suppose, start with the demand and I'll feed it back into the different reports because it's it's very clear to me that uh, the different cities are at different points in the market cycle. There's sub-markets and sub-markets and certainly your listeners must understand that it's there's no single apartment market, there's no single housing market across Australia and you need to really understand and um, there's sub-markets within sub-markets. But basically... Even I've just said that, if we take a, a macro overview, if you look at demand passing back, as Veronica said, um, Australia is very reliant on net overseas migration. The majority of it comes into um, Melbourne and Sydney, New South Wales and Victoria, but also now um, more and more into Queensland and then also some of the other states. And those migrants bring with them their living preferences, which is often for higher forms of accommodation, uh, high forms of density, such as apartments um, and also townhouses. Uh, leading up to COVID, we had very, very strong levels of growth. Borders were closed and um, net overseas migration basically stopped. And unfortunately, a lot of migrants were effectively sent home. And I've never seen a time where basically demand has been cut off so clearly as, as what happened now. It just it shouldn't normally, you know, in normal times, it shouldn't happen. More recently, though, when we look at the stats, and even though I, um, I, I do to an extent rely on the government forecasts, they have a very difficult time right now trying to forecast the, the return of migration. Over the last couple of years, I've just noticed that even though they're doing their best, it's, it's very difficult to um, estimate how quickly or how strongly demand is going to bounce back. And, and the most recent forecast that they published, which was at the end of the last year, basically said that net overseas migration was going to get to pre-pandemic levels this financial year, which ends in three months' time. However, the, those are their forecasts. When we actually look at what's happening on the ground, both with student visa applications um, as well as over, overseas arrivals, the, the stats show that because there's been a two-year hiatus, demand is bouncing back much, much more strongly than they'd forecast. And you probably saw a couple of reports released this week where they were saying that overseas migration would be over 300,000, and that's the strongest effectively it's ever going to be. So what has been historically, um, what that means is all these people are coming in, mainly to the capital cities in the East Coast, but also some of the smaller cities, they, they have to have a place to live. They bring within their living preferences. So they're coming in. There's a huge amount of demand. When we look at supply, as I was saying, when we've tracked for the last 15 years the supply of, of all housing um, types, whether it's apartments, townhouses, or, or house and land, but as it applies to apartments, that actually was, was slowing dramatically prior to COVID. And the reason why is because um, the government at in about 2017 was very worried that there was a huge amount of overseas investments and overseas investors coming in um, and they were driving up house prices and pricing out Australian known occupiers out of the housing market. And so they changed a number of incentives um, and also changed, uh, or, or the, the banks changed lending to investors. And there was a banking royal commission that you'd be well aware of. And all of that basically um, cooled down the, the apartment market from a demand perspective and developers became less confident. And then 
we're in terms of launching stock and getting pre-sales to to sell apartments. COVID then kicked in and unfortunately, a lot of the apartments are still rented out to either migrants or students. And when COVID kicked in, that occupier demand was lost. And so developers were even more unconfident about launching projects because they were so uncertain with what was going to happen and they didn't have anyone to either sell it to or occupy it. More recently then, we've also had with COVID now, even though borders are open, we've had supply chain issues. We've had um, construction cost increases, which are some of the strongest either since the GFC or the introduction of the GST back in 2000. And we've also had 10 interest rate rises, perhaps 11 today, although I'm hoping it's going to be put on hold today. What that means is that developers in, in such an uncertain environment have been very reluctant to launch projects to market because they're not worried that they're going to get pre-sales, that the required passports actually get funding to then build these projects out. So what that all means, just for your listeners, is that we've got a huge amount of demand passing back that is a very elastic response. It can come back very quickly. You basically open up borders and a lot of people can come through. When you compare that to supply, basically on a typical project of 100 apartment, it takes two to four years to actually um, get planning if, if, if you're in the right area and then also actually build it out and settle it. And so at a time where demand is bouncing back so strongly, we've got developers who are not launching projects right now, either because they're not feasible or because of negative media sentiments and uncertainty. And even if projects were launched today, they're only going to effectively be built out in the next two to four years' time. So really, in the next couple of years, we're facing a huge mismatch between supply and demand. The reason why we have a rental crisis across all Australian cities now, and basically you can analyze the rental market by looking at what the vacancy rate is. If it's below 3%, you basically say it's um, it's undersupplied. 3% is market equilibrium. Um, prior to COVID, all the rental markets, or most of them across Australia, were actually um, under 3% anyway. They increased, but not dramatically, to 6 or 7%. They're all now, a lot of them are lower than 1%, and that is an absolute disaster given population advancing back, given supply not, not coming along. And unfortunately, government needs to actually start helping, and I'll tell you how in a second, um, start helping to bring back local and foreign investors into the market, stimulate some of the supply and until that actually gets put onto the ground and uh, we're going to continue to have a major rental crisis um which is, is is a massive shame because melbourne has historically been the most livable city in the world and it's got so much going for it but it's going to struggle now with housing affordabilities as will sydney as will brisbane um, until the government realizes we're at a very different point in the market cycle and what they need to do is, is play a very important role and and one of them one of those roles is actually incentivizing local and foreign investors back into the market and they can do that through a number of ways but in the built to sell space it could be basically um, providing incentives for the plans that have to pay stamp duty um, or removing some of the foreign taxes and charges because those overseas mom and dad buyers um, or local investors are prepared to buy off the plan and they will actually make the majority of pre-sales in an apartment project and they can get it built when it comes to build to rent, which is an emerging asset class in Australia, it's, it's mature in um, the United States, it's about 50 years old. In the United Kingdom, it's about 10 years old, it's still maturing. Build to rent is um, one, one of the solutions. It's not going to be the only solution, but it will be one solution that can actually mobilize a large quantum of institutionally owned and built um, rental accommodation that can be delivered across all Australian cities. It will start mainly in Melbourne, that's been the epicenter of build to rent. And it can add to the dwelling stock and that will ultimately place downward pressure on rents. Even if the built to rent product comes in at the market at a rental premium, which most likely will just because it's a, it's a better quality rental product, 
it'll still pull a lot of the renters out of the existing market into the better development and free up more accommodation for for other renters. And so I suppose just to summarize what I've been saying is we've done reports for each of the cities. Each of the cities other than the Gold Coast and Canberra are heading into major um, undersupply issues at times where demand is bouncing back very, very strongly and supply does need to be mobilized. Um, otherwise, we're going to continue to struggle until that actually does change. A couple of things there. First of all, we put a link in the show notes um, to those reports so anybody wants to download them, they can. But secondly, what really seems to be so obvious for me here is a number of things. One is that because demand is so, I guess, responsive to lots of other dynamics and it can turn on a dime, whereas supply is like trying to turn the Queen Mary, right? So we've got two completely mismatched um, function or, or functions, basically. And so because, you know, while you're talking about this chronic undersupply, you mentioned the Gold Coast, you mentioned Melbourne, both both uh, locations have had chronic oversupply for long periods of time as well. You know, so like if you looked in the in CoreLogic's core, um, pain and gain report that comes out every quarter, looks at how many people have lost money when they sold property in the previous quarter. I, I remember the Gold Coast apartment market, for argument's sake, has been mentioned many, many times in those reports. So, and that's the symptom, I guess, or an outcome of this Queen Mary change versus the 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 bouncing change of demand. So, the supply takes ages, and so that supply could hit the market at a time when the demand has gone elsewhere or whatever, which is obviously what I guess what's happened in the past. So, looking to individual investors, and I guess there's a little reminder for me too, just to point out, which is probably obvious, but maybe some people don't sort of necessarily think this is that when we're looking at macro data and macro forces, but you're looking at making individual property decisions, then they're two, they're almost opposing. You know, like individual property decisions about where you should invest your one-off, you know, as a one-off investor is looking at buying one property, you know, a lot of people will look to this and think, all right, well, I've got to work out where the migrants are going to be going and I've got to work out, you know, where where there's not going to be that many apartments being built and all that sort of stuff trying to game the system. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about in a bigger sense. So I just want to encourage people not to think, oh, great, this is going to be where am I going to look for the next hotspot as a result of this conversation. Um, but this is really looking at where the big money needs to invest. And I, and, and I think what we should get to is also how important are foreign buyers in the build to sell sector as well, because, you know, I'm quite happy for foreign buyers to take their risk with our property market. We're trying to educate our local investors not to make silly decisions, but look, um, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, you know, I think this bigger conversation is so fascinating because of all of those those competing um, interests, I guess, if you like, individuals trying to make a, make a good investment decision for themselves. But at the end of the day, as a country, we're doing a very poor job of housing ourselves. So, um, okay, that was a long rant on my part. So I guess I'll get to a quick question for you. Where do you think... Yeah, let's go back to that. How important are foreign buyers yeah. to the build-to-sell sure. sector? Let's start off with that. Right. Um, there's a few things I'm keen to unpack there. First of all, don't underestimate a, a large number of the foreign buyers, how educated they actually are. They may look at Australia, but because they are, by the very nature, they are foreign, they're looking at a number of different investment destinations. They often see the fundamentals. And I think I've seen a couple of those headlines where they might think that it's completely uneducated money um, just coming in. That certainly, from a developer perspective, that's definitely not my experience. Um, 
money coming out of Singapore, Hong Kong, Asia is highly educated. And um, when it comes to the mom and dad investors, a lot of them are also very, very educated. So th that's the first thing I keep in mind. They, they are very much across, you know, rents and yields. Some of them aren't, but, but don't underestimate that it is educated, uh, highly educated. In terms of how important they are, well, a lot of the stats that we track, if you just take as a rule of thumb a, a project with 100 apartments, a lot of the projects, in particularly in Melbourne, maybe 75 of those would be sold to investors, local or foreign investors. Uh, 25 would go to effectively own occupiers. Um, and when you break that down at the peak times, a lot of them were going overseas to overseas investors, whether it was Chinese, but not just Chinese buyers, a lot of other uh, buyers. And so while it's important is they are more prepared to buy off the plan, they'll pay their 10% deposits, and they're looking for, for basically a rental return or yield. Um, they will then make up the pre-sales at the, the bank and then go to a financier and then get construction funding to build out the project. And so they basically, they are the underpinning of a lot of the reasons why these projects either proceed or don't proceed. And with their being knocked out of the markets by having additional taxes and charges imposed on them, they would have then have gone, all right, well, I could put this $1 into Australia or into the UK or to Canada. And historically, there were less incentives, so I got a greater return. It was a better investment. And they look now at Australia and they go, well, with these additional taxes and charges, I get a lower yield, so I might look elsewhere. And keep, keep in mind also that because they are, they, they're not also, they're not purely doing it on an investment. And they, they also have a number of drivers that might not make sense to local local investors. For example, if they're in a very unstable country, they might go, well, actually, I can get my money out of a particular country, put it into a very stable country like Australia. So there's additional drivers, but they are absolutely critical particularly for Australian capital cities and Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane in particular, if we need to deliver the quantum of supply of apartments that we need, there's, I don't believe there's the capacity for the local market to actually buy all these. Um, all, all in, in, in the short term, the foreign investors and the money is going to have to come in to actually support and, and get more of these projects off the ground over the time period that they need to be delivered. Otherwise, we're just not going to get back to the levels of, of what we need to be delivered to actually house um, Australian. So... In a long-winded way, to, to ask your question, they are absolutely essential to the market. But there's also a misconception that they're going to be driving up house prices. That, that That's actually not necessarily correct, given that they have to buy new stock. They actually aid the supply of new dwellings, which then um, can put downward pressure on prices at rents and also actually unlock certain areas where apartments can be developed and, and make the areas more livable because you get more people into those areas. Um, those occupiers then can support additional demand for retail, and there's a number of areas. I, I live in Carnegie, for example, in Melbourne, and there's been a number of apartments that have been put in, and a lot of them are to investors, and they rent it out either to students or to, um, you know, entry-level buyers or renters, and they bring with them demand for retail uses, and that area is transformed for the better. And I think, again, it's, they are very important. They're, they're critical, especially now, mom and dad, local investors, to stimulate the build-to-sell markets to get supply up and running. Bruce, before we go to the build to rent, because I think that's a, a myth that that's going to solve this problem in the short term. And we know that that's going to be a real slow burn. It's going to take many years for it to mature into, you know, we've got 11 million dwellings, right? Um, it, you know, if you have a million dwellings uh, under build to rent a long time, even if it's 500,000, etc., and your forecasts could tell us exactly what we should expect, but it's only going to be a real small portion of it. And I think it's heading in the right direction, but the beat build to sell side, um, you know, our listeners would understand that this is, you know, the off the plan space is not what we want our investors, you know, we educate our investors against, but they're so important to be adding more, you know, dwellings that are available for the rental market 
to provide housing to our growing population, right? Because then people get, that's what's causing homelessness, that's what's causing rent increases, et cetera. Um, do you think that's where the government really went wrong? You know, back in sort of, because we were, but we were, you know, the amount of development we were pumping out in 2014, 15, 16, um, you know, 30, 40,000 apartments in Sydney, right? And then we all sort of really targeted the foreign investors, which was, you know, a big mistake. We've got a don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You know, that's sort of what you, we probably shouldn't have done. But we also targeted the investors locally, right? We targeted them with the, the Royal Commission, the interest only, et cetera. So, yeah, looking back, the problems we have today, do you think it goes back to that sort of in the boom, forgetting that how important we are, uh, that part of the market is the investors? Um, and just taking the easy option just to target them rather than, you know, face the fact that the housing prices is, is caused on many different levels, not just investors playing. Well, a couple of points. First of all, I do have lots of government clients that I do chat with them as well to advise them. But I, I have said that, uh, yes, I think there was, at a number of levels, there was a misunderstanding of the apartment market and really hard works. And I think that investors, particularly foreign investors, are an easy target because they don't vote. And so you can very easily get their money, but then they don't cause community opposition and so forth. And they, they really either don't keep you in or out of political power. I've certainly noticed that. And unfortunately, they are an easy easy target, which is disappointing because, um, as I said, they underpin a lot of the pre-sales for apartments. What I think I must just make clear to you, everyone, is when we've looked at the stats in Melbourne and Sydney, we spoke about Sydney building 30,000 apartments, which is correct. Um, when you look at Sydney's population growth and the number of apartments that need to be built in Sydney, those years of peak supply were what was actually required to house Sydney siders. The fact that we haven't built before and after that is the reason why Sydney house prices are so high, because it's just not enough dwellings being built. Um, same thing with Melbourne. Melbourne needs to build fifteen to 18,000 apartments each and every year. If you look on our charts, at peak levels of supply, which were underpinned by investors, those are the only years where we actually got those levels of dwellings built. And so we've got huge population growth coming in. Um, people, More and more people are living, are going to have to live in single or picking they're going to have to group up into houses because it's not enough dwellings being built. And so, it, it, I suppose to ask you a question: Did the government get it wrong? Look, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I'm sad because I, I certainly was even involved in presenting to the government, explaining to them what was going to happen, how important investors were. Unfortunately, some of it fell on deaf ears. If I'm being honest, and um, I hope that they realise now that the market is cyclical and we're at a very different point, and that they can still not necessarily make amends, but they can they can reverse some of those changes that they they've done, whether it's planning changes to speed up things or allowing high density or as the incentives as we discussed. And s supply is rather inelastic, but decisions that they make today will flow through in two or four years' time. So they need to be being very brave. They need to be making decisions now. And they do need to be targeting um, foreign investors, which will actually provide a flow on benefits to unoccupiers and, and local Australians because of the supply being delivered. So you brought up a couple of things there, which is quite interesting. I mean, for starters, see that I mean, I do recall quite a lot of, if you think politically, right, um, it's easy to blame foreign investors for our rising prices. And I remember back to the previous boom, that 2012 to 2017, you know, there were quite a lot of headlines around Chinese investors for argument's sake. And, and, and then I read some data around that that's saying that actually the Chinese investors um, representing, I think it was only 18% of the, of the foreign investment market. And 
And so you can see this sort of populist type, I guess, arguments that are out there. And and the same for how evil investors are, particularly at the moment. You know, you, you still see, I've, I saw an academic, you know, opinion piece in the Herald basically going on about how investors are greedy, putting rents up. But I'm like, this is an academic, for God's sake, who you should be able to be have a bit more of a sophisticated, you know, argument or look at the actual problem rather than just simplistically saying interest rates going up mean that investors are going to put up rents. So there is that sort of populist, um, I guess, opinions out there, very easy to pop- propagate these opinions. But also what, what you're talking about foreign investors there, you know, being um, not um, uneducated, I think what you raised there was quite important because they make investment decisions for different reasons than what an Australian property investor might make. So parking money in a safer economy is a very different reason to invest. Um, And one of the other things that potentially might be uh, a a populist argument that um, you can disabuse us of if you want to is that, you know, particularly say the Chinese buyer might have bought a lot of property here in these apartment buildings um, and then you know, basically just banked them, didn't let rent them out, didn't have the many of them occupied. How much of a problem do you think that has been? And is it real or is that once again, just a bit of a beat up? Yep. Look, there's quite a bit to unpack there, but I've made some notes so I can just systematically work through it. First of all, your your comments about um, the media and talking about how bad certain foreign investors are. What I find very disappointing, you know, and I'd encourage all your listeners to basically critically analyze a lot of those media articles because it's very easy to pick one example and say this is reflected with the entire market. Every single foreign buyer is greedy or bad because this one bad egg did X, Y, and Z. And, and as I said, we pride ourselves in actually looking at some of the stats to go a bit deeper. And with respect to a lot of those media articles, they know well because they want to sell headlines. They'll pick the worst case scenario and then they'll it, I, sometimes I'm even guilty of it. I'll read the paper and I'll go, oh my goodness, this is reflecting the entire apartment market. That that could not be more more further from the truth to ask you. There certainly are you know, bad people out there, greedy investors out there. They catch the headlines, but that's not reflective either necessarily of what we're seeing on the ground or what's actually happening in the market overall. Um, in terms of your investors and their like, overseas investors and their purchasing decisions, um, it's fascinating because often they will actually drive drive the market at times that your local investors probably wouldn't because your local investors, they live in Australia and they're basically looking for a return on their investment. Whereas if you're overseas, at certain points in the cycle, if the exchange rate is favorable, it may actually make more sense for them to buy. And I must admit, when we studied the apartment market over 2014 to 2016, a Chinese buyer, even though it seemed like an extremely expensive price point in Australia, with the exchange rate back then, it was extremely affordable for them. And so then a lot of local buyers going, we're getting just doesn't make sense, like getting either price out of the market, how are these guys buying? They, and what we actually find is because of the exchange rate, it was favorable to them. And again, I would just reiterate with the quantum that was sold, um, that actually supported pre-sales rather than necessarily driving prices up, which is not really actually what happened. Um, in terms of a lot of the buyers, particularly Chinese buying them and then uh, um, holding on to them rather than renting them up, yes, some of that is true, uh, but there are also headlines back in 2014 and 2016 where um, there was an article, I don't know who put it out, but basically said that 30% of the doctrines was vacant. And when we looked into the stats, what they were doing is they were reading the water meter stats. So they'd got them wrong because they were part of owners' corporations. It wasn't reflective of what people, and then people started thinking, oh, all these Chinese buyers are adding these ghost towers. That actually wasn't the case. Um, there, there were ones that absolutely were vacant because 
Um, it, it seems to be a bit of a cultural thing that Chinese will, will buy it. They'll take their money out of the country. They don't want to necessarily lease it out because it's the perception of keeping it new. Conversely, they may actually have it because they, they're using it um, because they have kids and they want their kids to come and study in Australia. And Australia has some of the best tertiary educational institutions and often they'll they'll buy it and their kids will then live in it. And then they'll have it as their, hopefully when they get permanent residency, they'll, they'll stay in Australia. So th- these decisions... You can't make one one blanket statement that fits everyone. They're often quite unique, even though they're investment, investor purchasing decisions. But to answer your question, yes, some of them are absolutely, they are, they are purchased and they are kept vacant. But um, that still also will add to pre-sales or will also increase supply. Don't think it's necessarily something to be particularly worried about because still, it, ultimately, they do get occupied um, sooner rather than later. I think your key point there is that they do, it helps the developer get the pre-sales. It helps uh, bring money into the country, that that money goes to developers and they can do other projects, et cetera. So to, to think that there's no benefit to the society for that money coming in is a bit ignorant, right? And um, and you're right, if, if we can't, the developer can't get pre-sales and they're not going to build, right? If they haven't got the confidence. So what are your developers thinking right now? Because you could see on your reports, um, you know, a lot of them are very hesitant to release, you know, some whether it's greenfield estates, whether it's new house town townhouses, whether it's new apartments, um, ultimately the the how fast they release the land lots also controls prices, right? So if they don't have many projects out there, then um, so what what are they thinking? You know, I mean, with building prices, with labour shortages, you know, you've got big um, home builders going under in recent years. Um, no developer wants to you know take one project too far, um, and so what are they thinking right now? I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Look, that's a great that's a great question. I'll start unpacking that. What as part of the research, what I thought we'd do, because I think it just gives it better balance, is we look at all the stats, but we also speak to developers and financiers and builders, and we basically blend the quantitative versus the qualitative analysis to put it together. So to actually answer your question, there is a significant amount of very negative sentiment right now particularly from buyers. They are very nervous about interest rates, the cost of living, what's going to happen. And I'm sad to say also, I think that the they read the media headlines and the negative media headlines are driving a lot of this weak sentiment. And when I spoke with a lot of the um, developers, they would basically say every single time that they had projects that were launched in the market, every single time a negative media headline would come out, my inquiry would drop. And there were examples that they named to me, even back to foot and mouth disease, where people were worried about foot and mouth disease, to interest rate rises, to cost of living, and they were putting off um, buying decisions. What we're, fe- what we're starting to see now, though, is or certainly what we feel is that the RBA is close to the top of the rates tightening cycle, and certainly the financial markets are starting to realize that it's likely to start stabilizing, hopefully in the middle of the year. 
I hope after that, a lot of the buyers will start realizing that, yes, cost of living has increased a lot, but it's not going to be the end of the world. Interest rates are still actually, by um, historical standards, they're very low. They're not 17% like they were in the 1990s. And I feel that towards the end of the year, I actually think it's going to be towards the end of the year, but let's say it's early next year, the RBA is going to start cutting rates. I feel when they start cutting rates, and you can often study the housing market, there's pretty quick response for price growth and, and turnover when rates start to get cut. The housing market is one of the most sensitive parts um, of the economy to a change in the cash rate, either upwards or downwards. And I feel in the middle of the year, both buyers and developers will have more certainty with where the cash rate lands. And then when rates start to get cut, when you overlay that with the mismatch between supply and demand, there's going to be a very elastic response with how the next house price cycle will start in earnest. And it's going to be very strong because there's not enough dwellings and a huge amount of supply, a huge amount of demand bouncing back. So a lot of them are actually being brave right now. They're purchasing sites, they're taking it through planning and design, they're getting either ready to launch it into the next cycle so that they can start increasing prices to offset construction costs as they go through um, stages in the next cycle. Some of them are already launched it now because they, they realize now that they um, if they've got a good brand and they've got a good target market, they can get sales now. They're going to be then settling in a very strong point in the cycle and there's less settlement risk. And so some of them are they, they're factoring in slow pre-sales. They are factoring in increased construction costs, which is still a major issue. They're trying to offset some of that by, it sounds like they are actually um, staggering the, the revenues in their projects and going to increase prices throughout the, the sales campaign. And um, a bunch of them, at, at least five or six of them that I spoke to, particularly in Melbourne and to this extent in Brisbane, um, have had those difficult conversations with their buyers where they said, look, we're going to have to increase prices. And they've not been easy conversations because no one wants to pay more money. But the buyers are also sympathetic. And if you've got the right brand, the right product, they're still backing the developer. If they've got a bit of certainty with when the projects are going to be delivered and built out. And so it is still weak. I feel that um, the first half will continue to be very volatile. First half of the year will be very volatile and uncertain. Towards the back end of the year, people are going to realize that the world is not going to um, end. It's still going to be difficult right now. I appreciate that. Um, and I feel that buyers, particularly the downsizers, which are a huge aging segment of the, the population, they are unfortunately, they, they're aging, they're working against the clock, they need to start looking to downsize either into apartments or townhouses or into retirement. They will drive one of the segments of the market, um, as well as millennials who actually want to also, I suppose, get on with their lives and, and um, get into the housing market. So I encourage particularly the developers and the financiers, look further into the market cycle because there's a mismatch between supply and demand. There's a huge structural change in living preferences where people are renting and they're renting for longer. These uh, are more than millennials, they're renting, renting for longer. Um, they're getting married later in life. They're traveling earlier in their lives, and again, they can travel, which is great. Um, they're potentially putting their money into the share market rather than getting a 30-year loan. So they'll drive demand for different types of dwellings, whether it's built to sell or built to rent, and uh, developers are responding to that by starting to mobilize some of that stock. And, and then also there's the take-up of apartment living. Not everyone necessarily wants to live in a detached house on a quarter-acre block of land. The Great Australian Dream is not dead by any means, but it is evolving. One in, when you look at the last census, one in two people in Australia as of today's date either were born overseas or have parents that were born overseas. So almost by default, they bring within their living preferences, which is very different to 50 years ago, um, where a lot more people obviously were, or I suppose 50 years ago, people were coming out of Europe. But but the point is they in a they do have different living preferences and, and apartments actually do meet a lot of their needs. So, Chris, to answer your question, there is uncertainty right now. 
Certain developers are still very worried about getting slow rates of pre-sales, but they are becoming more and more confident knowing that it takes two to four years to deliver the stock. And they can see that if all their competitors don't proceed either because the projects don't stack up um, or because they're just not going to proceed, they're going to be selling and settling in a market that doesn't have a lot of competition. And it's particularly for a lot of the built to rent um, developers would be very brave and a lot of them are well capitalized and they're proceeding with construction and they will build out their projects in two years. They're likely going to be delivering stock into a market that has a vacancy rate of 1%. They're going to get very, very strong rental growth. They will have very fast take up in their buildings just by the very nature that there's not enough dwellings being built. And so longer term, they are much more positive. Shorter term, they're still hesitant. But I feel that that will change over the next six months, particularly with where there's more certainty with interest rates. You you mentioned a couple of things in that, and that's, I guess, we've got a, we all know we've got a chronic shortage at the moment on suppliers to ramp up both in the build to sell and build to rent space, um, and obviously encouraging more investors into the space. And I guess with the rapidly rising uh, or expectation of rapidly rising population, that demand is going to be absorbed for some period of time. So it's not like they're suddenly going to get full and then we're going to have a peak supply and then go into oversupply um, territory again. But the other thing you mentioned about price rises, you also mentioned about settlement risk. And the price rise, so are you saying that developers are going back to people that have purchased off the plan, pay their deposit and saying, look, our costs have gone up um, and we need to to cover those, otherwise we're not going to be able to build this thing. Um, so is that happening a lot? That people are actually think that they've committed to, a, um, to an apartment at a set price and they're being told that actually they're going to need to stump up more money? So to answer your question, there are two things are happening. One of them is, first of all, uh, developers, depending on who their target market is, they might have different tranches of apartments and then they're raising prices when they release each tranche. But to answer your specific question, yes, I've got a number of examples where basically a year ago they contracted at a certain price and they've gone to their clients and they've gone, um, you've got two options. You either, unfortunately, because of construction costs that you weren't aware of, you see the news headlines, um, we, we, please, can we have some more money up? And I, I don't know exactly how the conversation goes, <laughs> yeah. but they're asking for more money. Please, going, Look, sir. <laughs> the alternative is that we're not, we're not going to be able to proceed and you're not going to get a project. Now, um, the ones that have been successful with that are ones that have a good track record, a good brand to protect, uh, and they're, they're in it for the long haul. And they're taking their buyers on the journey saying, look, it's normally the downsizers who are actually, as I said to you, they're unfortunately working against the clock. They are looking for more appropriate forms of accommodation. They don't necessarily have um, a mortgage because they've paid off their house. Um, they're not impacted by interest rates. They've made 50% on their houses in some areas. And even though prices may have fallen by 10%, they're still 20% better off. Um, so it's, it must be a very difficult conversation to have. I'm not, not saying it's easy, but they have. They've gone to and they've gone, we do not have a project unless we actually increase prices. And I'm pleased to say the ones, and it hasn't happened with everyone because some of them have Again, I'm, I'm not the legal expert per se, even though I do have a legal background. I won't be giving the legal advice as to what the termination and sunset clauses say in that contract. But they've had to have a commercial conversation where they've said, we're not going to proceed. Uh, we're not going to be able to proceed unless we actually increase costs, increase, increase revenues to cover costs. But how, how does that then, though, translate into confidence in the buying population that when they commit to something like you know, an off-the-plan purchase that, you know, what they commit to is what they're going to have to pay because does, is this, 
you know what I mean? I mean, like I get that you've got to be commercial about this and the reality is that, you know, a lot of this is, well, this is all unexpected. The rapid rise in cost of construction has been highly unexpected and nobody wants to be stuck, you know, losing their deposit basically on a site that suddenly isn't going to be um, built and potentially there's bankruptcies and whatever. So, of course, you know, there's, but you're sort of over a barrel, aren't you? You know, you've already committed to it. You go, all right, what am I going to do? You're going to go no and then and lose everything? I mean, Look, it's it is a bit it is a bit of a disaster. And what I've actually found is that when we study the different projects, particularly the owner-occupied downsizer projects, is typically some some strong sales when the project is launched. But most of those buyers don't buy off the plan; they want to touch and feel and see. So what developers are actually doing is they're building up the projects with low levels of pre-sales. They're taking a, absolutely a financial risk, and if they've got the balance sheet to do it, they can do it. They're building it out, and as soon as they start building the project out, buyers get more confident that the developer is in it for the long haul, and then sales increase. Then when settlement occurs, they're getting a lot of sales, um, quite simply because obviously the project has been built out. And so what I've been talking to a few finances about is I actually think that there's a, there, there, and I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm smart enough to do it myself, I'm certainly not there. There must be some smart financiers out there that can actually arrange a different form of financing for apartment projects because the current financing arrangements of they reflect basically investor grade projects where you normally get pre-sales up to sixty or seventy percent of of effectively the project, and then you proceed with construction, and they all have ten percent deposits, and then you settle at the end. But there must be a different financing arrangement where you can allow a developer to build it out for low levels of pre-sales, um, because then you can actually lock in those construction costs. There's more certainty with timing, and and uh, what we've found again, I haven't seen the stats, but speaking to some of the big developers, whether they be some of the super funds or some of the really big ASX listed developers, they're building out the low levels of pre-sales, they're getting higher revenues at those different milestone dates in the project. That's how they're getting it to feasibly stack up. Veronica, to ask, answer your question about sentiment, I think that is the very issue. There's a lot of them that are not buying right now because they're extremely worried that the build day in particular is going to go under. I mean, you saw last week there were two build in a, a civil contractor that unfortunately again went under. So they, they are, it's, that's an understatement to say they're worried. They're actually terrified that there's, they're not going to get their project built. So what the developers, the, the, the ones that have been successful is they've signed up reputable builders who, um, I've even heard stories of the buyers actually asking the builders for their balance sheets. Now, whether the builders give it that, I'm not sure. I can suspect they probably won't, but the buyers are, are aware of that enough to actually go we're less worried about the developers. We're worried about the builders going under. Can the builders actually carry this out? Um, where are the materials coming from? And I'm led to believe by some of the, the developers that we're working with that if they can educate the buyers on the fact that the materials are around, that there's, you know, these are the rough costs or the rough timing. Um, and if they've got a brand to protect, they they are still getting those sales. But but make no mistake, it is slower. It's definitely slower than it has been historically. Um, and... and to close it off, your comment, yes, it is weaker sentiments because people are worried about that. They're very uncertain. Because you also mentioned settlement risk as well, which is another thing that plays into, you know, purchaser sentiment if they're aware of that. Um, what's happening there? Are they aware <laughs> of the, I mean, it's a good point, Veronica. Are they aware that the borrowing capacity reduction in the last 12 months is going to create huge settlement risks um, because the buyers who bought them, you know, thinking they could borrow six or seven times their salary are now potentially only going to be able to borrow five times their salary. Plus they, you know, and is, is this a brewing problem for, you know, they've still, they're finally getting through their build. Uh, they have, they've been able to, they're not making much money on this build anyway. Um, 
because of all the materials and the labors and the delay and all that sort of stuff. And then they're going to have all these settlement risks potentially brewing from their first home buyers or their investors. Look, to be honest with you, I can't give all the legal or financial advice, but that is, depending on who your target market is, that could be a risk. If your target market are downsizers who don't have a mortgage, they've paid off their house and they're sitting effectively in cash or equity, the settlement risk is actually very low. We found that those buyers, they take longer to buy, so sales rates are slower, but they settle very quickly, subject to the sale of their house. So if you if you distinguish it that way, I would say that those developers who are selling to owner-occupier downsizers, there's much lower risk. There absolutely is risk for your investors or your first home buyers, and I would suspect that the majority of them would not, because they buy off the plan and then in two years' time they might settle, they probably haven't thought about us anymore. They're probably reading headlines, but maybe some of your listeners have gone, oh my goodness, I thought that I could take up as much money, but in two years' time, it may be, and I would suspect it will be very different. So um, that could, may well be, yes. Um, I'm not quite going as far as saying they should go and get legal or financial advice, but, but that is something that they do need to be aware of because financial conditions I mean, as we know that the RBA said that rates weren't going to rise until 2024, a lot of people actually, and before, during that time, a lot of people bought off the plan in a lot of the apartment projects. They will be settling in this year or next year, depending when they get built out. Then your capacity to settle will be very, very different. You're absolutely right. And potentially it could be a risk. So you've got the Porter Davis thing. Um, I saw there was like arson on one of their sites today, the tradies, you know, it's, it's pretty horrible what's happening there in terms of the subbies and yeah, the buyers, etc. But there was also just two years ago, we had mascot towers, right? We had the cladding issues. And so there was already a, a fear around building because of um, the, the building problems that were, were rife. And there was lots of reports. It was all over the media pages. And, um, and so a lot of people were anti sort of buying new because of that. Then you had now the issue of whether the builders even got to stick around, you know, companies like PBS and you know, et cetera. So these, what's your thoughts around how the builders... Are they getting around the fear of the quality being a problem? Like, do you think that that's the buyers have forgotten about the building issues, or do you think that they're still a big problem for no, a lot of buyers? buyers they, they've got long memories, and so they should. They, but, but again, I actually think this is quite good because the market will decide what gets built. And what we're finding right now is that developers who have a brand to protect, they're in it for the long haul, um, won't let that happen. And you can actually see again that the big ASX listed developers or the super funds and things like that that are building these projects out, they will come back, they'll rectify the defects. So the market is actually, and we can see it in those projects, the market goes, who is this developer? Okay, they've got a successful track record, so we'll back them in. But you're absolutely right, there are other ones that have more risk with them, and they most likely are getting lower sales rates, certainly in some of the projects we're seeing, um, because buyers are worried about this. Um, even though the National Construction Code is changing, um, down in Victoria, they are changing things with cladding issues and stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, those headlines, again, it might be a few, there were quite a lot of projects actually, unfortunately, that had cladding that I'm led to believe was actually compliant at that period of time that they've subsequently found out that it, it wasn't, which is a shame because it was actually built with compliant, it complied with the building code. But there were those projects that have tarnished the entire industry. And again, that's not reflective because there's different um, developers and builders with different brands that do different products. And as the market matures, as the as the buyer market of apartments becomes more educated, they will start seeing, all right, this is a good quality builder, good quality product, good quality developer, we will back them. Unfortunately, the ones that are going to have to evolve and respond are more the investor-grade projects or the ones that are maybe do one-off, like a, I don't know, like a builder-developer. 
they, they will have much more risk, particularly because they would typically sell it to more the entry level investor or owner occupier. They they've had they've definitely been in, impacted by things like those mascot tower issues, um, and I think that they will continue to do they will continue to be impacted, but. But I don't think that's a bad thing because the market actually does need to step up and build better product. You can't have, like you see some of those ones, and unfortunately there's other ones that I'm aware of that maybe didn't make the news headlines, but I've got friends in Owners Corporation Management, um, and that's going to be my jumbo of the week that I'm going to talk to you about in due course. With Owners Corporation Managers, and they tell me the defects that they see in these buildings just do very poor quality. It's not That's just not good enough. You need to be building stuff that's actually fit for purpose, that's going to last you know, longer than 10 years. You look at some of these projects and you think, I wonder if this is actually going to last for 10 years. After a couple of years, it's dated, it's already aged. Um, but my point is that that if, if there are developers listening, they need to actually make sure that they know their target market and their target market knows much more what they want in an apartment because they've been in Melbourne, they've been locked down for a number of years, so they, they need livable apartments, but they also are very well aware of the cladding issues, the building defects, and they are much more careful with their due diligence in terms of what they are prepared to buy. So I think by default, even though I know planning is trying to do that with better apartment design standards and, and minimal apartment sizes, the market in many respects will also decide because quite simply just will not buy a product if it's not, you know, reflective of the price point and the value. So that is also something that happened a number of years ago in the housing market as that matures some more, the detached housing market is more mature than apartments. But I do feel that as it continues to mature, the buyers will also decide on a lot of these projects. I hear you to a degree, but the other thing, the flip side of that is that when it's a hot market, so at the moment we're not in a hot market, but when it's a hot market, when FOMO is running rampant, the discernment goes out the window. And I know this because I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it's it. And the stats too. You, mm. you're right. It's, it's funny. So you go, and I've got a perfect example to tell you why you're right. Wonderful. Hit, hit me with it because I, I love it. <laughs> well, well, basically, I was chatting to a, a client a couple of days ago and we were talking about their project and I said, look, you must understand your target market because um, you price them at a certain price point and um, you, you're actually higher than a lot of your competitors. So whilst there's a lot of apartment supply coming to this particular area, they're not all going to be competing with you. So don't worry about all the supply. And you turn around. I mean, Richard, we financed a lot of these projects over the last 15 years and we've found that in the hot cycle, you're right, it actually it does go out the window and and Suddenly, what we we thought weren't what our competitors do compete with us, and and the buyers jump into the project, or vice versa, they go into the other ones, and there's there's less of a distinction made, and so it does depend on the points in the cycle that you're at, and I, and again, they they are they've been in the industry for a long time, so they've seen the good and the bad points in the cycle. So you are absolutely right that that is um, that is something, but it depends on the it. I still would maintain it depends on the price and the market that the the. The submarket that you're in at the point of the cycle you're in. If you're a really good developer with a good brand, you you've you always get the premium by the nature of the fact that the product that you're you're building um, and delivering there's a scarcity value on it. Um, often it's a unique product and and buyers will pay for it. But but it comes down to the location um, and the points in the cycle. But, uh, Do you think we've got a capacity restraint, right? Just in terms of the number of uh, resources, in terms of workers to build these. Um, these buildings, you know, when we've got competing projects, right? You've got the Metro in Sydney, you've got, um, you know, the Olympics in Brisbane, you've got major projects that are taking workers that could be building house apartments, townhouses that are building, you know, office blocks and towers in the city, et cetera. So 
you know, do you think that, uh, and then you've got a uh, reduction in the confidence of builders to be hiring staff, right? Um, you know, if you think about, do you want to be, uh, you know, when you talk about all the building issues and companies going under, et cetera, so, and when governments, it's more safer to potentially have a job in a government, um, you know, than a builder, for example. So do you think we're going to have this, even if the developers wanted to go, right, there's this real opportunity in the market right now, um, building prices are coming under control, there's a real supply shortage. We know demand's going to build off the housing market. You know, as the housing markets recover, people are fo- forced to buy off the plan because it's their only option. They get desperate, right? And investors may enter back as well because they'll think rents are up. So demand's not a problem, but they just cannot find the workers um, and the the materials potentially to release a lot to the market. That's it. And it's a very important, Ten your step back, the advice that we often give is whilst we are highlight the opportunities, we have to always talk about the risks. And I've done a lot of risk pieces of work. And what I've noticed is that during COVID, not just Australia, but a lot of countries sought to build their way out of COVID by basically funding huge infrastructure projects. That meant it, the Greenfield market was the first one that was affected where a lot of the timber, for example, may have come to Australia, but forget of sight that there were bushfires and there were supply chain shortages. The USA needed more timber than Australia, so it was basically paying high prices and taking all the timber away. Uh, the, the advice that we're giving right now is that materials, that's a short-term risk, but for the next decade, it's going to be labor. Why we think labor and, and availability of skills workers? Because as you said, in, in Brisbane, we've got the Olympics in 2032. There's a huge amount of city shaping infrastructure that's much more profitable than residential construction. It will take materials, take labor away, leading up to the Olympics. Same things happen in, in, across um, both Sydney and, and Melbourne with huge infrastructure projects being delivered, and that they will be delivered over the next decade. And what we saw during COVID was a lot of builders went, well, we could work on these resi Greenfield estates, or we could go work on the Metro Rail Tunnel. There's far more profitable. We can make more money there. Let's go work there. So that is a long-term risk. It is a major issue, and it's going to be worse in Brisbane just because of the Olympics and all the infrastructure coming there. What government needs to do is actually start kind of like what Canada's doing, where they're just opening up and getting more overall migration in. But government needs to focus on getting skilled migrants in to actually, you know, where it's engineering and a whole bunch of those jobs to actually help out um, to build out all this, not just the infrastructure, but also all the um, the dwellings that need to be built. So I don't necessarily have all the answers, but what I'm saying is that over the next decade, there's going to be a global chase for talent. So it's probably good. People that are coming out of university, get into engineering and construction. You're going to be in so dem- so much demand because of what happened in 2020, because of how the market was distorted, because of all the financial commitments that the countries have made to build out these projects. How that then applies to developers and um, on their projects, I think a lot of that will go into just increasing costs, increasing prices in the end. It'll have to drive prices up. Um, I think the bigger players may have larger bargaining power so they'll be able to actually maybe still deliver some of their projects at scale and and keep some of their costs down but it is a it is a major issue um it, it, and again I, I don't really know a way around it other than a, a worker that may want to even come to australia hopefully the saving grace is that australia is very attractive for a number of reasons not just a salary whereas if you go to some of the other countries overseas it might be well i can get a good because there's you know money on these projects um you can get higher wages there but chris to ask your question it is a major risk and i think we always give advice like the short-term and the longer-term risks the short-term risks are definitely in the shortage of materials hopefully the supply chain issues continue to resolve themselves over the next couple of years but longer term it is going to be labor 
And so you'd be skilled labor in those industries. Yeah. Richard, you mentioned you've probably done by before. Do you want to just quickly enlighten us and we'll have a bit of a laugh? <laughs> I have a, a number of them, but what I actually thought is, um, again, one that I think hopefully will help a lot of your listeners because with with the research that I do, I've helped a lot of my friends and family buy houses and apartments. And um, I mentioned to, well, I mentioned to you I'm friends with people in the strata industry. And the reason being is that when I changed careers, I was practicing law. I went back and I got my master's in property, but for a year and a half, I needed to um, basically get an income. So I worked uh, as an owner's corporation manager part-time whilst I was studying. And it was really a blessing in disguise because I, I learned all about owner's corporation management. And particularly as it applies to apartments, you, you obviously have an owner's corporation annual general meeting where you talk about the building and you set budgets and you talk about defects. And the number and the week that I would say to you, I, I'm pleased to say I haven't done it, but I'll help both. I've got two younger sisters. They've bought townhouses and apartments. I encourage your listeners when you're reviewing the construct, when you're reviewing the sale of land contracts, basically be aware of the, the buyer beware clauses, which say you need to do your own investigations. If you actually look at the minutes of the meetings, you can work out whether there are defects in the building. And why it's important is because I've had, even on some of the properties that I was looking to buy, there'd be an apartment that was 50 grand cheaper than all the other ones. And you start going, what on earth is going on? And I've actually had sales agents that have gone, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with it. And I've reviewed the contracts, called up the owner's corporation manager and gone, oh, I've seen that there's, you're getting a building defects report um, for the property, what's going on. And then you find out that there's huge leaks and that there's 200 grand's worth of work to to be rectified. So why I say that's a dumbbell of the week is because my sisters have come to me and, and they're, you know, they're medical professionals and in hospitality. So they're not going to know much about property, which is perfectly fine. And they've got, we found this fantastic dwelling in this area. We want to buy it. It's cheaper. Why can't we buy it? And when you review it, you think, well, you're about to buy a lemon. And I think that's very relevant, particularly because we're talking about apartments. They'll all come under owners' corporation or strata um, schemes. Um, so be, be aware that that's, that's a very good tip. You can actually save yourself a lot of money and a lot of money and a lot of um, issues by actually doing a bit of research. And you should really call up the owners' corporation manager. There will be one on all the projects, and you can actually chat with them, and they can tell you what's going on. So that, that I suppose, is my more of my Dumbo of the week, and hopefully helps other listeners avoid what could be a catastrophic um, mistake. I think you nailed it. I think you covered it all there, Richard. And um, absolutely, I think the buy beware is obviously the key takeaway here. And um, you can never do too much due diligence, and you know, especially when you're in the apartment owners' corporation strata space, you more digging you do, the better um, to give you that confidence because once you've signed, it's uh, too late. Richard's awesome um, report. I mean, it'd be great to have you come back on maybe in the future as well once we these these issues start to unravel a little bit more because, um, yeah, it's like, like Veronica said, it's like moving the Queen Mary this. It's, um, it's going to take years for it to play out. Thanks for coming on. Hey, you must welcome. Yeah, really appreciate your time. It's uh, been a very interesting chat. Thank you, Richard. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.